We've all heard stories of women in perfect health, going missing, leaving nothing solid behind as a clue as to where or how they went. Each instance is as tragic as the last. The families are left with nothing but heartache and questions that will likely never be answered. But for one family in particular, as the years ticked on, more questions unfolded as the mystery of their daughter's disappearance revealed horrible truths about their own town and humanity in general. Welcome to Strange and Unexplained with me, Daisy Egan. I'm a writer and an actor who has never gone missing, but hopes that her loved ones would strike a balance between searching for answers and maintaining their own physical and mental health, if I ever did. This week, we'll head to the Land of Enchantment, where one family's quest to find their daughter turned into a decades-long mystery with devastating consequences. Tara Calico was born on February 20th, 1969, in Bellin, New Mexico, about 30 miles south of Albuquerque. Her mother Pat's pregnancy had been so difficult, doctors told her not to buy any baby stuff. Unfortunately, it's pretty much impossible at this point to know what exactly the difficulties with the pregnancy were, but pregnancy, it turns out, is a pretty precarious state to be in for a lot of people. And one can only hope the doctor wasn't, like, on his way out the door and just casually went, oh, yeah, I wouldn't buy any baby shit if I were you. Anyway... Pat and Tara's father divorced not long after Tara was born, and Pat remarried when Tara was six. Tara's new stepdad, John Dole, worked for the same railroad company Pat did. The new blended family was basically a modern-day Brady Bunch, with Pat's three children, Todd, Chris, and Tara, and John's two daughters, Debbie and Michelle. John became a father figure to Tara and later told the Albuquerque Journal in 2013 that Tara was a feisty, athletic little girl, which he attributed to being raised with two older brothers. He said, If they wanted to go out and lasso a snake, she was right there with them. She ran. She rode her bike every day. She was always on the go. As she got older, friends and family knew Tara to be incredibly generous, hardworking, and kind. She started earning money by the age of five, selling homemade paperweights door-to-door. She was kind to animals. She gave blood, like, a lot of blood. Her mom told the Albuquerque Journal that she probably had given a gallon by the time she was 19. Pat also said that Tara was the glue that held the family together. She was the one who made all the birthday plans and appointments for family portraits. Her younger stepsister, Michelle, said despite the four-year age difference, especially as they both got older, Tara would bring Michelle along to hang out with friends or go shopping or biking. Tara was also a great student. She spoke French, played the violin, and tennis. Wow, this is making me feel like a real slouch. While she was in her senior year of high school, Tara also took courses at the local community college. She told friends she was thinking about becoming a psychologist. In short, it seems like Tara was a pretty stellar human being, a parent's dream and everyone's best friend. Except she probably wouldn't have been mine because I absolutely would not have been able to keep up with her. As her sophomore year at the University of New Mexico Valencia began, Tara would spend every morning going on a 34-mile bike ride. 34 miles. That's pretty much how wide the state I live in is from east to west. 
every morning she would ride the equivalent of the width of Rhode Island. I am exhausted just thinking about that. Anyway, Tara's mother, Pat, had taken the ride with her a few times. I cannot picture my mother having even gotten on a bicycle, let alone riding 34 miles on it. But she stopped because she got bad vibes on the route. She said there was one morning where she felt like she'd been stalked by a motorist while on the ride. She apparently suggested to Tara that she carry mace with her when she went. According to Pat, Tara said, don't be silly, because she generally just trusted people. And, like, hindsight is twenty twenty, but... Pat should have insisted Tara either change her route or carry the damn mace. I know she was 19 and had agency over her own body, but technically, 19-year-olds are still tiny little lost lambs who still need their mommies to make sure their shoes are tied and they have their emergency whistles on them at all times. I say this as someone who used to be 19 years old. And fine, maybe she trusted people, but carry the mace just in case of, I don't know, a cougar attack? Whatever kind of animal lives in the New Mexico desert. On September 20th, 1988, she headed out for her daily Olympian bike ride on her mom's pink Huffy because her own bike had a flat tire. Strapped on her Walkman headphones with a Boston cassette and told her mom that if she wasn't back by noon, to come get her. Now, nothing I read or watched about this case stopped on that sentence, which is bonkers to me. Who says something like that? I mean, I do all the time. If I'm not back in a half hour, call the police. Ha 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 ha. But that's because I write this show and I watch a lot of Dateline. Was Tara just kidding? Or was she worried about something or someone in particular? And if she was, for the love of Peter Dinklage, change your route and carry mace. Needless to say, Tara wasn't back by noon. Pat, true to her word, immediately went out looking for her. She drove Tara's normal route and found nothing, not a single sign of Tara. She went back later that same afternoon with some of Tara's friends, but again, nothing. She then called the local hospital and rescue unit, neither of which had seen or heard from Tara. Her next call was to the Valencia County Police Department, where she filed a missing persons report. According to a 2013 piece in the Albuquerque Journal, quote, within five hours, Tara's name was entered into the NCIC, National Crime Information Center, as a missing person with a notification that foul play was feared. I don't know if that means within five hours of her disappearance or within five hours of her mother reporting her missing, but either way, it's remarkable. Tara was technically an adult, and it seems to me that even when kids are missing, police wait till forever to file a report to do anything official about it because, for all we know, your kid ran away. Even with the rapid response from local police, after a two-week search, quote, involving local and state police, various military units, and hundreds of volunteer searchers on foot, on horseback, on four wheels, as well as in airplanes and helicopters, end quote, according to the Albuquerque Journal, only three traces of Tara were found. There were Huffy tire tracks, the Boston cassette tape, and the broken viewing window of the Sony Walkman all found on the shoulder on a point along Tara's usual highway route. 
Seven witnesses who had reported seeing Tara at various points along her route were questioned. The Albuquerque Journal piece from 1994 said that she was last seen at 11.45 a.m., only two miles from home. But the 2013 piece from the same paper said the last confirmed sighting was 11.30 a.m., about a half mile from her home. At any rate, reports say she'd been headed northbound toward home. Five of the eyewitnesses reported they'd seen an old white pickup truck, probably a Ford, with a camper shell over its bed, following Tara pretty close behind. Tara, who was wearing her earphones and probably rocking out to more than a feeling, seemed unaware of the truck. One of the witnesses who reported seeing the vehicle apparently underwent hypnosis twice, I guess to try to get more information out of him. After all that, all police had was a composite sketch of the truck. And you know me, I'm no truck expert, but I'm willing to bet there are a lot of old white pickup trucks in New Mexico. So I can't imagine the sketch was going to do them much good. The search efforts continued, with family and friends helping out, fueled mostly by Tara's parents, Pat and John Dole. John told the Albuquerque Journal... I was on fire initially. In fact, I think I made a lot of people pretty nervous, including law enforcement, which wasn't my intent. But I was determined. I'm a pretty straightforward person, and I'll give you an answer if you ask. But it might not be the one you like. And he had help. The search became a community affair. A family friend told the Albuquerque Journal... I helped search the whole area for at least a week. We looked everywhere near the home, the surrounding areas of NM-47. There were many, many people out there helping to search. Within five months of Tara's disappearance, 80,000 flyers had been mailed to law enforcement agencies all across the country from coast to coast and even up to Canada. There's no mention of Mexico at all, which is odd given its proximity to New Mexico. Like, if you're worried she may have been taken across the border, wouldn't you think it was the closer border? Despite these efforts, the case went cold. After years and years of searching with no leads, the police went to a psychic. Oh, no, I'm sorry, I read that wrong. The police went to a psychic nine days in. Nine days. They searched for just over a week and were like, ugh, this isn't working. What can we do? Nine days. Let me tell you when it's appropriate to go to a psychic for help with a missing person. Never. To be fair, they didn't seek out the psychic. She came to them and was like, I know where the missing girl is or whatever, and told police to focus their efforts around an isolated cattle ranch off the road Tara had been biking. And look, you don't have to be psychic to be like, hey, maybe whoever took her took her to this super remote, isolated place only eight miles from where she was last seen. And the fact that police hadn't already searched that area is a little baffling. So police searched the ranch, and wouldn't you know, the psychic had been wrong. No Tara. So police were like, okay, no more messing around. Let's be serious. Only science-backed methods from now on. (laughs) Ha just kidding. The police then hired a water witcher. That's right, strangers. The police hired a water witcher, paid to put him up in a local motel, and paid him $150 to wave a stick around. 
And because the police spent tax dollars on a water witcher, I have to spend time explaining what a water witcher is for those of you who don't know. I apologize in advance. A water witcher, or dowser, according to the U.S. Geological Service, is someone who uses a forked stick made from a variety of different trees, including, but not limited to, willow, peach tree, and witch hazel. But they might also use a rod, or pendulum, or keys, or wire coat hangers, or pliers, or wire rods, or various kinds of elaborate boxes and electrical instruments. And they don't just find water. No, water witchers have been used to help find bombs, oil, gold, and lost TV remote controls. Apparently, the practice has been around for centuries, if not millennia, across various countries. The point is, do I believe in water witching? No. Have I been wrong about plenty of other things? Yes. And if defunding the police means taking away their funds for paying psychics and water witchers, I'm all for it. Anyway, the water witcher was like, she's in that river. And the police were like, we already dragged that river. And he said, drag it again. Whether or not they did, I don't know. I suppose in some ways it may not be fair to ride the Albuquerque police too hard for their handling of this case because the Albuquerque police had a lot on their plates in 1988. According to that 1994 piece in the Albuquerque Journal, quote, In 1988, the year Tara Calico disappeared, violent crimes soared in Valencia County. Shootings, stranglings, and slashings, typically drug-driven, seemed to take place weekly in the county, so often that there was a 300% increase in homicides from the year before. End quote. 300%! The article then goes on to say that while Valencia County is bigger than Rhode Island, which, I mean, what isn't bigger than Rhode Island, honestly, it only had a population of about 45,000. So there were a lot of vast, empty plains where someone might, say, bury a body where no one would ever find it. Still, aside from local police, there were crews searching by helicopter and on the ground with bloodhounds, people from the Air Force and National Guard, state police, search and rescue professionals, as well as local volunteers. But not a trace of Tara beyond those three clues from early on was found. And then, one year after Tara went missing, on June 15, 1989, 1,600 miles away in a parking lot in Port St. Joe, Florida, of all places, a van pulled out of a parking spot, and the woman in the car next to it noticed something odd on the ground where the van had just been. She got out of her car and picked it up, and, I would imagine, immediately regretted it. What she found was a Polaroid photo of what looked like a teenage girl, maybe around 15 years old, and a younger boy, maybe around 8 or 9 years old, lying on some blankets and pillows. They are both bound, their hands tied behind their backs, with tape over their mouths, looking at the camera in what can only be described as a sort of exhausted terror. The woman immediately took the photo to police who set up roadblocks, but the white van she'd described pulling out of the parking lot was long gone. The photo was distributed across the country in a bulletin sent out by the Missing Children Information Clearinghouse. Two months later, Pat Dole got a call from a relative who'd seen the photo on the popular news magazine show A Current Affair. The girl, the relative said, looked an awful lot like Tara. 
And she had a point, insofar as the young woman in the photo had the same hair color and complexion as Tara, as well as a spot of discoloration on her thigh that might have matched a scar Tara had gotten in a car accident years before. And then there was the paperback lying next to her. It was My Sweet Audrina by V.C. Andrews, apparently one of Tara's favorite authors. Of course, V.C. Andrews was an extremely prolific writer with over 90 novels to her name, many of them young adult novels, so it's not a leap to say that a lot of teenage girls were big fans of her work. That said, though, there were some differences between the girl in the picture and Tara. For one thing, the girl in the photo's face was drawn and more narrow than Tara's. But it stands to reason that a few months of perhaps being held captive by whoever took that picture, she might have lost weight. For me, though, it's the eyebrows, which are a totally different shape than Tara's. But the possibility that the girl could be Tara was made stronger not by the image of the girl, but of the boy lying next to her. Five months before Tara had gone missing, a boy named Michael Henley had gone missing just about 50 miles southwest of Tara's home in the Cibola National Park. He'd been on a camping trip with his father and a family friend when he wandered away from the campsite, and by the time anyone realized it, he was gone. Like, gone, gone. The search effort was extensive, but stymied by poor weather conditions and by well-meaning searchers who may have erased any sign of Michael by tromping through the same area back and forth. The prevailing theory in Michael's death was that he'd wandered off in shorts and a t-shirt, got disoriented, and by the time night fell, bringing with it freezing temperatures, because don't forget, the desert can be blazing hot during the day and deadly cold at night, he likely froze to death. But when the Polaroid of these two children surfaced, people began to wonder if there was a chance that these were the two children who'd gone missing around the same time, around the same area in New Mexico. As awful as this fate was to picture, both kids' parents welcomed the possibility. Better alive than dead. Although, as a parent of a nine-year-old boy myself, I have to say, I don't know. If, heaven forbid, Monty disappeared... I just wouldn't want him to suffer. Incidentally, Monty made me tell him a bedtime story the other night where we took him to South Korea when he was one years old and he got lost and BTS found him and raised him. Anyway. Tara's mom, Pat, and Michael's parents traveled all the way to Florida to meet with law enforcement there. After examining the hard copy Polaroid, Pat was convinced the girl in the photo was Tara. She told the New York Times, Strange as it may seem, I would thank him for keeping her alive. I would thank him for taking care of her, seeing that she's fed, seeing that she's clean. I hope he values her life as much as we do. This is generous, and maybe she was just hoping whoever it was that had the girl would think that he would receive mercy if he released her. And sure, thank him for feeding her and keeping her alive, and then beat him bloody with a frying pan until his eyes pop out of his head like Glenn's at the end of season seven of The Walking Dead. I said what I said. Michael's mother was sure the boy was Michael. His father still wavered, though. The Polaroid was then examined by the FBI and Scotland Yard, and according to a 2013 article in Crime Magazine, the FBI was like, nope, this absolutely is not Tara. And Scotland Yard was like, yes, this absolutely is Tara. 
There's not much information about what their findings on the boy in the photos were. Just goes to show how exact that forensic science is. And now, get this. Both Pat and John Dole were officially deputized by the Valencia County Sheriff to help, I guess, in their search for their daughter. The deputy status came with a license to carry a firearm, which means jack shit today when anyone with a few bucks can carry a firearm in New Mexico. After the photo came out, the calls from people claiming they'd spotted Tara and Michael came in from all across the country. And of course, with each claim, hope was renewed that they would either be able to run the kidnapper down or he would slip up and get caught. The community had raised $40,000 to put a reward up for any information leading to Tara's whereabouts or fate. Surely, they thought, that might lure someone from the shadows. This went on for a year. Both sets of parents, it turns, sure then unsure about the children in the Polaroid, but always holding out hope. I'm sure every time the phone rang, it came with prayers whispered to please let this be the phone call. But then, in June 1990, a year after the Polaroid was found, a rancher found bones scattered just about seven miles from where Michael had been camping with his father a little more than two years earlier. It took the medical examiner five days to make a positive ID. The bones belonged to Michael Henley, which finally put an end to his parents' worry and searching. But it also meant the boy in the photo wasn't Michael, which made the possibility that the girl was Tara more remote. There was nothing else tying the photo to New Mexico. Despite that, Tara's mother, Pat, still held out hope and wasn't sure the girl in the photo wasn't Tara. Sure, she looked a lot younger than Tara had been when she'd gone missing, but there was that scar on her leg and the V.C. Andrews novel. Plus, she reasoned no one had been able to find Tara's body, though Pat admitted the vast, empty plains of New Mexico held a lot of secrets, not a few of which were bodies that no one would ever find. There were other photos. Law enforcement around the country began sending Pat any photo of any young woman that might possibly kind of sort of resemble Tara that was missing or found dead. Pat told the Albuquerque Journal, I've looked at literally hundreds of photos of girls, some alive, some dead. More than a few of the girls in the photo looked to be in similar circumstances as the girl in the Polaroid found under the van in Florida, tape over the mouth, bound and terrified. Could you imagine the psychological toll that must have taken on Pat to have to look at these photos knowing there was nothing she could do to help the poor girls in them? There were two in particular Pat thought might be Tara, but nothing ever came of them. Three years after Tara had gone missing, tensions between the Doles and the county sheriff, Lawrence Romero Sr., were rising. The Doles believed the department wasn't doing enough to help find their daughter, to which Romero told the Albuquerque Journal, quote, I don't think I left a stone unturned. In 29 years of law enforcement, I haven't seen anything more frustrating, end quote. The department was understaffed and beleaguered, and yet deputies would chase down whatever lead they could, traveling to Oklahoma to see if a runaway someone had seen was Tara, or searching abandoned mine shafts. 
Despite the majority opinion that Tara had likely been killed the day she went missing, apparently, according to the Albuquerque Journal, detectives would call the Doles to run any theory by them. Quote, maybe Tara was a courier hired to take drugs to Mexico. That maybe Tara was peddled to a black market in the Near East. That maybe Tara had been captured and tortured by satanic cultists. That maybe Tara had been hit by a drunken driver who then carted her off. Maybe Tara took off because she didn't like her mother, end quote. Ah, yes, when all else fails, blame Satanists or the mother. And then, in 1991, Sheriff Romero Sr. suffered his own tragedy when his son Lawrence Romero Jr. shot himself to death in his rented trailer home. Romero Sr. said, quote, I know the doll's pain. I really do. At least I got to bury my child, end quote. I mean, it's a little different, friend, having your child disappear and devoting the rest of your life to finding them and losing your child to suicide, but okay, I'll allow it for now. In 1993, the Valencia County DA's office took over the case from the anemic sheriff's department. Contract investigator Jay Eschenberg, who is described by the Albuquerque Journal basically as Tommy Lee Jones and the Fugitive, inherited a thick stack of files on the case. Eschenberg also found himself at odds with the Dole family, telling the journal, quote, I love them dearly, but I won't discuss the case with them anymore. We've come to differ about some things, end quote. Pat was still convinced that Tara was alive and wanted every lead pursued. Eschenberg, on the other hand, believed that there was a trio of individuals whom he refused to name, I think because of lack of physical evidence, who he thought ran Tara off the road, abducted, raped, and killed her. Meanwhile, Pat was still chasing down every lead, no matter how cockamamie it might have been. So-called psychics from all over the country would call to tell her they had visions of Tara getting onto a bus in San Diego, or that she was in an abandoned barn in Kentucky, or that she was eating tomatoes with cheese and Italian dressing, which was apparently Tara's favorite snack. This last one, Pat said, put her in a chill. But Eschenberg chalked it all up to coincidence and said that the circus element made his job much harder. The whole thing was wearing down on Pat as well. Eight years of dogged determination, years in which she carried guilt at shortchanging her other children in pursuit of Tara, and apparently surviving on a diet made up mostly of black coffee and cigarettes, took its toll on her well-being. In August of 1996, a good friend of Pat's died, and then Pat had to investigate an apparent suicide on the railroad tracks as part of her job. And then, Texas law enforcement officials called to say they'd found a skeleton in some tennis shoes that were similar to the ones Tara had been wearing when she disappeared. The dental records didn't match, and this seemed to be the final straw. Her blood pressure was skyrocketing, she was exhausted and sad. It was only at this point that Pat received any mental health support. Look, I know things were different in the 90s, but Lord have mercy. Please, please, please go to therapy. Pat died from a series of strokes in 2006 at 64, three years after moving to Florida, where she hoped not every single thing would remind her of Tara, but where she also feared Tara wouldn't be able to find them if she did come home. She honestly never gave up hope. According to Crime Magazine, one of her last to-do lists read, 
Laundry, vacuum, dust, write letter to FBI. And then, in 2008, Valencia County's new sheriff, Rene Rivera, told the Albuquerque Journal, The individuals who did the harm to Tara knew who she was. They knew who she was, and they're all local individuals. And I believe that the parents of the attackers were some of the people that helped the individuals with hiding the truth or hiding the body or trying to escape prosecution. I'm sorry, what? Pardon me? Not only that, but Rivera said that he had known for years who had done it and who had helped cover it up, that it wasn't much of a secret in certain circles. The reporter for the journal was like, um, why haven't there been any arrests then? And Rivera explained that without a body, they couldn't prove anything. But he believed that the people living with the secret, the people who'd been carrying it around for 20 years, were bound to break and come forward in order to relieve their consciences. That's an awful lot of faith in humanity, Bob. An awful lot. When Tara's stepdad, John, heard this news, he said, I thought it was silly when I heard it. There's such a thing as circumstantial evidence, and I know in other places they've gotten a conviction on strong circumstantial evidence. It should never have been said unless there, the sheriff's department is willing to make an arrest and go forward with it. Despite Rivera's claims that he knew who had done it and that people would be coming out of the woodwork any day now to clear their consciences, it was another decade before Tara's case began to heat up again. A friend of Tara's, Melinda Escabel, had finally decided that enough was enough, and she took it upon herself to investigate what had really happened to her friend all those years ago. And what she found was just, I hope you're sitting down. First, in 2013, a man named Henry Brown made a deathbed confession in which he claimed to have seen what he thought was a dead body wrapped in a blue tarp in a makeshift basement under Lawrence Romero Jr.'s trailer the night of Tara's disappearance. Yes, the former sheriff's son. Brown said that Romero Jr. and a man named Dave Silva then discussed how they, along with another young man named Leroy Chavez, had intentionally hit Tara with their car, put her in the back of their truck, drove off to some gravel pits where they raped her, and when she said she was going to go to the cops, or as Romero Jr. apparently put it, when she got ballsy, the men killed her. Excuse me for a moment. Thank you. According to Mr. Brown, Sheriff Romero knew his son had participated in the abduction, rape, and murder of Tara Calico and didn't do anything about it in order to protect his son. Not only that, but Romero Sr. then hired Sheriff Rene Rivera because he apparently had their backs and would continue the cover-up. The deputy who recorded this deathbed confession, Frank Mathola, told Melinda Escabel about it. He said he contacted the person who was still in charge of Tara's case at the time, who happened to be Sheriff Rene Rivera, 
and handed over the notes and cassette recording of the deathbed confession. When Esquibel went to find the tapes and notes, there was no documentation of either in Tara's file. Either Deputy Mathola was lying, or someone took the evidence he handed in and got rid of it. According to Mathola, Sheriff Rivera had also been in charge of investigating Lawrence Romero Jr.'s suicide, and that apparently he'd left a note in which he confessed to Tara's murder, but that the note was never entered into evidence. But here's the thing. There's no evidence of any of this, and all of it, at this point, is gossip. Plus, it turns out, Deputy Frank Mathola himself is not exactly a stand-up guy. Sometime around 2010, Mathola was arrested and charged with attempting to make an arrest outside his jurisdiction and tasing someone in the process. And the citizens of his town in Loving, New Mexico, were very familiar with Mathola's brand of policing, which was often rogue and included excessive force. Apparently, after Mathola's arrest and after allegedly wrecking two patrol cars, Sheriff Rivera tried to have him fired. Instead, Mathola resigned. Jesus Christ, this case. Melinda Escabel, for her part, has uncovered a lot of questionable things in her amateur investigation into her friend's disappearance. For one thing, she told The Sun Online that when she got Tara's case files, quote, they were in shambles. There were files with people's names on it, and there was nothing in there, end quote. From what she has been able to determine through hundreds of interviews with people in the community, she believes she's solved the case, but that there's not much she can do without any authority. She believes a group of boys who knew Tara and knew where she'd been that morning planned to run her off the road, attack her, and kill her. She believes Tara is buried somewhere within 20 miles of where she went missing. She hopes that as people associated with the case begin to pass away and others feel more free to come forward with the secrets they've been keeping, the truth will come out. Her case file has 25,000 items. She refuses to hand it over to the sheriff's department, which, if you ask me, is a smart move considering the mess she found the files in to begin with. She has, though, shared the file with the FBI and has released a 24-episode podcast called Vanished, the Tara Calico Investigation, about her findings. It seems she's migrated the show to Patreon, so it's now behind a paywall. And then, just about a year ago, in October 2021, the FBI announced that they were pursuing a new lead in the case and were offering a $20,000 reward for any information leading to the whereabouts of Tara Calico. They even said a search warrant had been issued, but as of this writing in October of 2022, no arrests have been made. I think it's pretty clear what happened to Tara on the bike ride that September morning in 1988. It seems it was somehow the best and worst kept secret in Valencia County. Shamefully, the people in charge chose to protect the perpetrators and their accomplices rather than seek justice for a young woman cut down in her prime. But where is Tara? Surely someone knows and might find it in their hearts to, at the very least, drop an anonymous note to the FBI directing them to her resting place? It would literally be the least they could do for Tara and her family. 
The ongoing search, the mystery, the questions left unanswered have only prolonged the pain this family has suffered. Then again, can any amount of information salve the broken hearts of her friends and family? There's no clear path forward from the disappearance of a loved one. Ask anyone who's ever been privy. There is only the strange future following the unexplained past and the brave people who find their own way of holding space for both. Next time on Strange and Unexplained... For decades, New York City's Roosevelt Island was host to one of the most infamous and notorious psychiatric hospitals of all time. We'll follow novelist Charles Dickens, famous journalist Nellie Bly, and the countless souls who had the misfortune to wander the halls of the New York Lunatic Asylum. We have a lot of fascinating and bizarre stories to share with you this season, but we want to hear your episode suggestions as well. If you have a story you'd like us to cover, whether it's a well-known case or something that happened in your town that the world hasn't heard about yet, go to our website, strangeandunexplainedpod.com, and fill out the contact form. Strange and Unexplained is a production of the Obsessed Network and is produced by Becca Gregorio and Natalie Grillo. This episode was written by me, Daisy Egan, researched by Jess McKillop, and edited by Eve Kerrigan. Our audio mixer and engineer is Jennifer Swatek. Our voice actors for this episode were Luther Creek, Lauren Hooper, and Ryan Garcia. If you like our show, please help us out by rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts. It really helps. Follow us on Instagram. We are at SNUPod. And check out the Strange and Unexplained Facebook page to join in the conversation. 